I get a, a periodical that comes from uh, the district of the Eastern Ontario District of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. And in it, they usually have a couple of pastors, and it's kind of meet these pastors. And they ask them little questions like, uh, you know, uh, which, what's your favorite movie? What's this and that? I don't know why, but they do that. And then what book? has been of profound influence in your life. So I was looking at it, and two pastors, and they started talking about Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. I've talked about this a bit in my class, my Christian ed class. Both of them saying, and these are PAOC pastors, how this has just totally changed their view of of the Bible and, and the cross and God's love and kind of revolutionized their lives. So I'm sitting at home, and I thought I should get this. So I ordered the book, and I read it right through, cover to cover. And, and, and then we're sitting in the family room, and Rini has, uh, she's on the social media. She gets, like, face twit and all that stuff. And, and, and so she's showing me these, these posts from pastors, and some of them I knew, some of them I didn't, some I knew very well. And they're talking about this book. This has just totally changed my thinking. And either there's something wrong with me. The book, the book aggravated me. And, and so I'm reading this. It, and I, I look in the, uh, in the endorsements of the book. And, and there's Bruxy Cavey, teaching pastor at the Meeting House. I can't count the number of times I felt like standing and cheering while reading this book by Brian Zahn. I thought, well, that's... Brian Zahn's, um, it relates to Hebrews. That's the reason I'm doing this now. Hebrews gives you this picture. We've been in Hebrews for 33 weeks, counting today. It gives you a, a big theological understanding of Old Covenant and New the sacrifices leading to the coming of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Brian Zahn doesn't like all that emphasis on animals being killed and blood and sacrifice, and he thinks it's a distorted view of God. And so I'm reading this book. Now, you have to forgive me. There's just a couple quotes, and they jump into the middle. Because it, 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 it reflects a view of scripture that is growing in the evangelical church and a view of God that is growing in the evangelical church, really gaining a lot of momentum. Brian writes, these are his words, we need to keep in mind that the Old Testament doesn't just give us one portrait of God, but many. It's impossible to make the Old Testament univocal. The Old Testament is a chorus of many voices And they're not always in perfect harmony. Many times they're contradictory. Does God require animal sacrifice? Well, the priests and the Levites say, yes. And that's what we find in the Torah. But eventually, the psalmists and the prophets begin to challenge this. David says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. I used those texts two weeks ago, Sunday morning. In this psalm, David brashly contradicts the Torah's unambiguous laws requiring animal sacrifice. Later, Hosea claims that God doesn't want sacrifice, but mercy. 
The Old Testament is a journey of discovery. The Bible itself is on the quest to discover the Word of God. What we find in the Old Testament is a progression of revelation. The Old Testament begins with a primitive assumption that God requires ritual sacrifice, but eventually moves away from that position. So progressive revelation. So how did these guys ever get the idea, all these uh, Old Testament priests? It seems obvious that we should accept that as Israel was in the process of receiving the revelation of Yahweh, some unavoidable assumptions were made. And one of the assumptions was that Yahweh shared the violent attributes of other deities worshipped in the ancient Near East. So, so, so these, these people, Moses and others, they thought that God was commanding them to offer these kinds of sacrifices. He wasn't. He never was. But they got the idea because they're surrounded by nations that are killing animals and offering their children in sacrifice and doing all sorts of violent pagan things. And Israel just assumed that their God wanted them to do the same thing. He calls that progressive revelation. See, what progressive revelation actually means is moving from an incomplete picture to a final picture. It doesn't mean moving from inaccurate knowledge to true knowledge. That's not what progressive revelation ever has traditionally meant. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. What the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is point us to Jesus. And he he says earlier, um, this is the theme of John's majestic gospel as he asserts over and over that it is Jesus who finally and fully reveals the humanity of what God is like. The incarnation is the ultimate act of self-disclosure. It's Jesus, not the Bible, that is an inerrant revelation from God. Now, just apart, apart from everything else, just think about this sentence. This is the theme of John's majestic gospel. This is what, this is what Brian Zahn is saying. John's majestic gospel shows us that it's Jesus who's the perfect revelation of God, not the scriptures. And you want to go, wait a minute. John's John's gospel is where you're getting your information about Jesus being the perfect revelation from God. Jesus is the perfect revelation, not the scriptures. And so I'm thinking, where, where do you get your information about Jesus? Is he texting you? Does he email you? I mean, the whole thing starts to unravel and fall apart. He can't stand the idea. Uh, I've talked long enough. He can't stand the idea that these bloody, violent sacrifices could be required by a loving God. The solution is you have to change your view of revelation, how it comes, the truthfulness of it, because that's the only way home. What we're doing is looking at not a verse here shredded up and a verse here shredded up. We're looking at the way the writer of Hebrews talks about the old covenant fulfilled in the new. 
it is the hardest book to preach on for me. I've never, I've never found a text harder to work with than the book of Hebrews. But it's so important because, and I don't mean this in a belittling way, but the average church-going Christian is just not sure what do we do with these Old Testaments of ours. Can I rip a verse out of Leviticus and say, there, it's a sin to wear uh, garments with two kinds of fabric and apply it to the church? Well, no, you can't, you can't do that. But it's done all the time. It's done by people, for example, who argue, who argue against the prohibitions of homosexuality in the scriptures. And what they will almost always say is, well, those verses that you Christians always quote from Leviticus, which is always the wrong way to do it, they also say that we should stone someone that curses their parents. Do you believe we should do that? No, I don't think we should. Well, then why do you pull out these verses about a man lying with a man and so on and so forth? See, it's what, what do we do with these Old Testaments of ours? And that's really the big issue that we're covering in the book of Hebrews that took way too long. Part 33. Why, neither the law nor the sacrifices could lead us into Father God's promised rest. We're up to chapter 9. We finished verse 14 last week. We'll start 15 right now. Therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called, here's an important part, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. We're going to be talking about that. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. You're in your parents' will, but unless there's some change done through a lawyer, the usual procedure is you don't get what they left you until they die. A lot of children aren't happy with that, but it's, it's the way it is. 17. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, you can read about that, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, that's weird, all the vessels used in worship. This is, this is what Brian Zahn can't, just, this is cultic like dark, weird, spooky, violent stuff. 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see your greatness and glory in the fulfillment of of all that was foreshadowed and portrayed so weakly in the Old Covenant. Give us good understanding of redemption. In your name I pray. Amen. So our writer is explaining 
how new covenant people receive the promised eternal inheritance. And with that phrase, he's really, he's really kind of repeating and expanding a theme that he had already introduced in previous texts. Here's two of them. Therefore, while the prom- here's the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's another promised inheritance, promised rest. Here's another one. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Same idea. Our writer is talking about the promise of entering his rest. For one, the city that is yet to come, 1314. Now he expands on that in more detail as as our promised eternal inheritance, 9.15. So, so what this text is about is, is a process. It's, it's all about how we come into this, how we receive that internal inheritance, how we enter that promised rest, how we enter that city that is yet to come. They're all pictures of the same thing. Maybe even more importantly... It's a text about how we know, how we can be sure that we will receive that inheritance and find that rest and enter that city. So our writer's goal in today's text, remember, remember his audience, is to make clear to these Jewish believers, these believers under so much pressure to come again under the emptiness and the bondage of the first covenant of law. He he wants to make clear to them that they will never find God's promised rest that way. They will never enter that city to come under that covenant. They will never get their promised inheritance through that covenant. Don't go back there, is what he's saying. Who cares, Pastor Don? Well, this is more than ancient history for us. You have neighbors. You have neighbors who believe in God and who think that through some religious practice, some form of uh, meditation, most commonly through their best efforts of humanitarian compassion for others or or their embrace of tolerance of differing ideologies, their loving acceptance of all peoples. There are people who think God will accept their best efforts while they live and will embrace their souls after they die on the basis of those things. All over Newmarket, there's people like that. Most people maintain some form of this delusion as the operating system of their lives. And there are dozens of of false Christian leaders making big bucks, propagating a a kind of gospel that that is a a little less abrasive, a little less offensive, and a little more comforting for everybody to hear. That's the point, by the way, of those two testaments that you carry in some form or another in your Bible 
to church. This is the wisdom and mercy of God's uh, patient revelation of his son's redeeming work. That, That the Christ... God the Son is sent into an already pre-existing religious system. That his coming is promised right back in the covenant with Abraham. That everything God reveals is packaged in a two-covenant system. A system designed to reveal the necessity of redemption from the outside for people who are already passionate in their own religious devotion. In other words, let me say it this way. It was always God's plan to unpack the gospel of his son in the new covenant. It was always God's plan to unpack that in the context of a failing old covenant. That was the idea. This progressive revelation more clearly reveals the need for a different approach to God. We are shown shown what doesn't work first, so we will be able to embrace what will work second. Revelation is tailored to show your neighbor... That he or she is wrong about approaching God while rejecting Jesus. That they can't get there. And what you're beholding there isn't a brutal, wrathful, mean God. What you're beholding there is the mercy of Father God's old, new covenant revelation as he gets the world ready for Jesus. Point number one. There's a visitor beside you who just just fell on the floor right now. Pick him up. What the first covenant promised and why it didn't work. Let's just try and make it as simple as we can. It's in 915. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant... So that those who are called may receive, may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them. So a death, a death has occurred. By the way, Brian Zahn is absolutely adamant. Father God is not involved in what he calls cosmic child abuse. So... God had nothing to do with the death of his son. It was, well, it was the Romans, it was the religious leaders, it was wicked people who killed Jesus. I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm reading through John, and I see Jesus saying, nope, nobody takes my life from me. Is, is that what you think, the Romans? That's what Jesus is saying, by the way. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Don, focus. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. So there's the meaning of that death. It's pretty clear. 
that, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, in just a verse or two, our writer will reveal how God communicated the terms of that first covenant. Our text says that God did this through Moses, that the terms were the commandments given on Mount Sinai. Let me just show you that so you're I'm not making anything up here. Therefore, not even the first covenant. So that's what he's talking about, right? We're all agreed? Was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. We'll we'll look at those verses in a second. My only point here is that our writer is careful to define when this first covenant was initiated. All the details are in the text. The terms were the commandments. They were given on Mount Sinai. And Moses was the mediator. All that is right there in those those two verses. Now, of particular interest here is the nature of this covenant. We don't always think about this. What did the people gain in keeping those commandments? What did the people gain in keeping the covenant, and what did they lose in breaking it? Who cares, Pastor Don? Well, we need to care, because it's the contrast between the old and new covenant on these points that our writer has on his heart that gives meaning to the text. Here's what we know. In keeping the covenant, people gain God's blessing of the promised land. Keep the first covenant, and here's what you get. You get Canaan. Exodus, we don't have to guess about this. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh... For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the covenant context. As God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. What covenant? Give them the land of Canaan. Give them the land of Canaan. So here's what we know so far. God established a covenant with his people. He established it through the law on the mountain. He established it through Moses. Moses it says, was the mediator. It had been promised, but he was the mediator of that covenant. And if the people kept the terms of the covenant, God would give them the land of Canaan. A land, as we've all heard for so long, flowing with milk and honey. Well, the people didn't keep the covenant. People never kept the covenant. And so that promise, your Old Testament ends... That promise never materialized in any permanent form. So that leads to the next question. What was 
Well, what was the punishment for breaking the first covenant? Well, again, you don't have to guess. Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, today I set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, you shall live. Here it is. Multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. See it here? There it is again. In the land that you are entering to take possession of it. What if they don't? If your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. Here it is again. You shall not long live in the land that you are going over Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. He says it again. I've set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Choose life. <laughs> God makes his test so easy. Door number one, door number two. There's a car and a zonk. Door number one. Choose door number one. I set before you death and life. By the way, if you're too dense, let me tell you what to choose. Choose life. Choose life. You and your offspring may live, loving the Lord, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may, here it is again, dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Break the covenant, you don't get the land. But that's not all. You don't get life. You perish. Instead of life and good, they get death and evil. Verse 15, take note of that word, death. why he commanded the death of all those animals. This is not God having a hissy fit of anger. This, this is the wages of sin is death and you're witnessing the first hints of that New Testament doctrine of sin. Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. Alright, that was a bit of work. So here we are. Our text has unpacked a covenant of law. There's an earthly reward for the covenant kept. There's land. And we have a hopelessly depraved bunch of covenant breakers staring death in the face. Such, such is the fate of my best religious moral efforts. That's where you end up. With your own works, your own devotion, however you choose to manifest it, struggling, doing the best you can, covenant breaker, staring death in the face. Point number two. So something was needed to redeem sinners for the sins committed under the first covenant. Our text is very blunt about that. 9.15. He
He's the mediator of a, of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, look at this, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It was once a given among evangelicals that the death of Christ was sort of directly related to an actual redemption from the legal guilt of sins committed. That is no longer the case, and I just gave you dozens of examples. And that means we, we need to trace the truth very carefully from this text. Verse 15 says, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. And I, and I want to just make sure that we all see beyond any doubt who this he is. And if you have a Bible in front of you, and I hope you do, we can see who this he is just by backing up. Just put it in reverse and back up one verse. Because verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, the himself is Christ, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. So the, the he is Jesus. The he is the Messiah, God the Son. And then the reason. Very clearly stated. Our Lord's sinless life, his willing death, his subsequent priestly ministry, they are, they are savingly essential. That's what he's saying here. The mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that released them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now we get to the core of Christian truth. Here's my concern. Take that away. Circumvent it. Explain it away. Modify it. And you don't just get a different form of Christianity. Okay? You get a different religion altogether. You get a different religion altogether. It's not Christianity anymore. And here's the core truth. When our writer says Christ died and in his death in 15 it says he redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. When he says this, he means that apart from recognizing and glorying in Christ's redemptive sacrifice... All sins stand as separation from God. Even when those sins exist in people devoutly committed to another religious system. He says Jesus had to come and redeem them from sins committed under the first covenant. So what, what, is, what is God revealing to us? Well, what he's revealing to us is if, if you take away Jesus, you, you, you don't have any way of having sins removed. There's a lot at stake here. Point three. 
now we're we're eighty percent done. The saving benefit of Christ can never be obtained through the moral teaching of Christ. I get this from sixteen and seventeen. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. It's not in force as long as the one who made it is, is still alive. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to use Google Maps without your location settings being turned on? I mean, it will still work in terms of a general map, but if, if you're in an unknown area and you want to know how to find a certain destination, it's really much easier when your device shows you the route to your destination and it can actually show you where you are now. Without the where you are now, the destination doesn't give you much information. This is the best way to understand the meaning of Bible texts. Where we are right now is we've just seen the old covenant demanded sacrificial offering of animals for the people's sins. What wasn't explained as fully is why on earth did those animals have to die? What did they do? And the reason they had to die was the people hadn't kept the covenant. All these people just like you, just like I am, failed to keep the terms of God's covenant of law. And that was a huge problem because the first covenant penalty for transgression was death. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. So the price of transgression had to be paid under that first covenant. And God ordained the sacrificial death of all those animals in lieu of the sinners themselves. But the problem wasn't really solved. I mean, our writer tells us that those sins committed weren't actually removed by those sacrifices. Do you see that in, in verse 15? That's why Jesus came and died. And, and now we have as clearly set forth as ever it was the reason for the death of Jesus, the world's Messiah. He died to redeem sinners from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, 15. And the beef of our second point is, it wasn't the moral teaching of Jesus that accomplished my redemption. It wasn't the miracles of Jesus. It wasn't the loving words of Jesus. It wasn't the great example of Jesus. It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. When does a will take effect? The death. 
And our writer, I know this is a bit laborious. It's because our writer is going to hammer this over and over and over and over again till you get it and then really get it, and then he'll remind you of it, and then he'll say it again, and then he'll remind you of it again. And so you get the feeling is this must really matter. That's the reason, by the way, that the writer very quickly, without any warning, he switches images from a covenant to a will. When you start in at verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. It takes place only at death, not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. There still had to be death. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Can you imagine wearing your best clothes to church one Sunday? And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent, the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The point, of course, is the redeeming work of our Lord did not and could not reach us in his life. As glorious as his life was, it's not what brought about our redemption. No, our redemption came about the way all benefits from a will come about, it was through his death that we receive life. And I, you know, it's not my business, I guess. When I read a book like this, and a whole bunch of others, and there's a lot of knowledge and good writing, tremendous writing and everything else, and I just want to say to somebody... To know and study Jesus without knowing this is like knowing everything about Billy Graham except that he was an evangelist. Switch the metaphor. It's like, it's like knowing everything about Tiger Woods except that he played golf. Like, this, this is what Jesus is about. The key to the entire Bible the whole book of Hebrews, it reveals about how the triune God bestows forgiveness and, and eternal life. Final thing our text emphasizes is this central theme in love's redeeming work. It was already being pictured in all the sacrifices from the very opening moments of that inaugural first covenant on Mount Sinai. Look at 19, the last text. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took, he took the blood. How striking, eh? I won't read the rest. How... How striking that right when God gives these commandments 
and he knows they aren't going to keep it. He tells Moses that, by the way. <laughs> Read it. He's, he says to Moses, they're not going to keep these. Why give them? So, so when the commandments are given, it sounds gruesome to our ears. There's all the people, and they're listening to the commands. And Moses comes, and he's got this, I don't know what it looked like, big thing of the blood of bulls and goats. And whatever this thing looked like that he dipped in there, and there you, there you all are. And he goes, seriously, can you imagine people sitting there? What was that like? Why do that? At the very giving of the commandment of the first covenant, God is saying, and you're going to need the death of my son and his shed blood. Only you won't believe it if I just tell you that. I'm going to give you this much history to prove it to you. I'm going to do all I can. Christmas is coming. I'm going to do all I can to show the whole world, religious people and non-religious people, that they need that baby born in the manger who will die on the cross for their sins. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all God's thankful, understanding people said, Amen. Amen. We have a lot to celebrate by the way, servers, you can get ready. Go ahead. There, 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 is, there is one more thing about this will. When I die, my kids will get what I have left and split it 50-50. Well, okay, Rini will get first shot at it. But then when she dies, if there's anything left, and that's not likely, it gets split. In, in this promised inheritance that takes effect through the death of Christ, here's the neat thing. Several billion Christians each get the whole inheritance. That it isn't diluted or diminished or divided. We have much to celebrate around the table.